Um, as we've seen thus far, it's, it's impossible not to notice, right? Wherever Jesus goes, there is inevitably controversy. There's always controversy wherever He goes. And so I thought it might be educational for some and of interest to others. Some of the controversy He's stirring up even now. Right? In the world religions. So just a, let me just more or less read to you for a few minutes. Bear with me if you would. I'm going to read to you what some of the major world religions think about Jesus Christ. Judaism. Many Jews do not consider Jesus Christ at all. They do not believe He was the Messiah. They do not believe He was the Son of God or that He rose from the dead. He is seen by many as simply an extremist and a false Messiah. Islam. Jesus Christ is respected, a respected prophet sent by Allah. You may know that there are over 124,000 such prophets in Islam. He was sinless. He was born of a virgin. He was a miracle worker, but He was not the Son of God. He was and is not God, and He was not crucified. Hinduism. Hinduism sees Jesus as a teacher, a guru, or an avatar, simply meaning an incarnation of Vishnu. He is a Son of God just as other men are. His death did not atone for sins, and He did not rise from the dead. Buddhism believes Jesus is generally seen as an enlightened teacher or simply an avatar, but He is not God. Transcendentalism believes that Jesus is not uniquely God, but like all other persons, has a divine essence. He did not suffer and could not suffer for people's sin. Hare Krishna. He is not important to this group. He is seen as an enlightened vegetarian teacher who taught meditation. I don't know the chapter and verse on that. An enlightened vegetarian teacher. Okay. So, how about a bit of the controversy between some of the cults and some of the crazies? Uh, just a few more I thought I'd share with you. Jehovah's Witnesses. Some of you have interacted with them. They do not believe that Jesus is God. Before coming to earth, He was Michael, the archangel. He died on a stake and was resurrected as a spirit. He was not bodily raised up. His body was destroyed. He returned invisibly in 1914 in spirit and very soon is returning to destroy all non-Jehovah Witnesses. The Mormons. Jesus is a, sep is a separate God from the Father. A spirit child created by a Father God and a Mother God in heaven. He and Satan are brothers. His body was created through sexual union between the Father and Mary. He was married. His death on the cross does not provide atonement for all sin. Christian science. Jesus was not the Christ, but a man who displayed the Christ ideal. He was not God. He could not and did not suffer for sin. He did not die on the cross. He was not resurrected. How about the New Age? Jesus is not the one true God or Savior. He is a spiritual model and now has ascended uh, as a master. He was a New Ager who tapped into divine power in the same way that you and I can. He did not physically rise, but rose into a higher spiritual realm. Maybe two more. Scientology just for fun. Jesus was not the Creator, nor was He an operating Thetan, which I think Tom Cruise is, meaning in control of supernatural powers and cleared from all mental defects. He did not die for sins. And just maybe one more, just because it's so inane. Uh, if you know anything about the militant atheists that do a lot of writing and speaking these days, Richard Dawkins is one of the foremost. He is quoted as saying, I actually heard him say this on YouTube, He's not even sure if Jesus existed at all, right? Well, although the historical evidence is overwhelming and indisputable, uh, he makes this allegation. Uh, but no serious historian denies the historicity of Jesus. So I wanted to share all that with you. Some of you may have been familiar with some of it. Uh, maybe not all of you. 
But can't you hear Satan laughing? Can't you almost hear him laughing? With all of the confusion and lies he has disseminated into the world about the Son of God, about the Creator God, about the Redeemer God. There is no end. This is my experience. I've been doing this for 34 years. There is no end to the stupidity that man will believe. Men will believe almost anything but the truth of God. We've been seeing it. John chapter 5, John chapter 6, now John chapter 7. And of course, the world religions that I just mentioned to you uh, and the cults, they're, they're satanic. If, if it's a lie, we know where it's from. If they're telling you a lie about Jesus Christ, if they're telling you a lie about Jesus Christ, where does the lie come from? You tell me. The father of lies, right? Satan. This is the clear implication of Scripture. Any lie about Jesus is from Satan. Any lie from about anything important is, is from Satan. So consequently, all world religions are satanic. They're demonic. I know that's not politically correct. I know we're not supposed to talk like this in a multicultural world. But Jesus talked like this. It got Him crucified. Jesus loved people enough to tell them the truth. Right? He loved them enough to tell them the truth. My question to you always is, will you love your neighbors and your colleagues and your friends and your family enough to tell them the truth? I don't care how well respected the religion is, if they're lying about Jesus, we know where that is coming from. So, Satan has got quite a few lies circulating in the world. I mean, it's just like, pick the one you like best. You know, if you want to deny the true God, just pick the, the, the lie you like best. You know, you can go with Richard Dawkins. Well, uh, I don't believe he existed at all. Which, you know, a true historian or serious historian would, would actually concur with. But just take your pick. Take your pick. Pick your lie. If you don't want God, pick your lie. There are 10,000 of them in the world. So, men will believe almost anything. And we know from the Bible that it's not a simple case of man not being able to find God, right? We talk about this a lot. I bring you back to this all the time because you have to understand the truth of mankind. Mankind is proactively disbelieving. Mankind must fight within himself to push down the truth about Christ. It's what the Bible clearly says about what we do. You guys know Romans 1, 18 and 19. I'm going to read it to you. The man, that, that mankind suppresses the truth because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. The literal Greek translation here is to hold down the truth. So when you're talking to one of your friends or colleagues and you're sharing with them about Christ and they are unbelieving, you know what they're doing. They're holding it down. They know He's God. The Bible's clear. Every man knows he's God. I just read it to you from Romans chapter 1. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. We know it. It's in our hearts. It's in our conscience. It's written in the created order. It's obvious that he's there. But men are holding down the truth. I looked up some synonyms for this word suppress. Listen to this. This is what men do when faced with the truth about Christ. They stifle it. They restrain it. They smother it. They cover it up. They hide it. They conceal it. They muffle it. They censor it like many churches do, so-called churches these days. They quash it. They clamp down on it. It's why mankind is such a sucker for all these stupid lies that Satan is pushing into the world. Right? They're holding down the truth. As we've seen many times and talked about many times in the Psalms, the psalmist says, I'll have no God over me. And this is what we see in mankind. So as we conclude John 
chapter 7 tonight, we continue to see the controversy. And the controversy continues to rage. 2,000 years later, the controversy rages. Oh, you mentioned Jesus Christ in the, in the uh, town square, in the public square. You bring His name into it. <laughs> and you won't have to talk very long before the controversy begins. You guys know what I'm talking about. If you're a vocal Christian in the world, it doesn't take very long for the controversy to begin. So, we're in John 7. Let me remind you of the context. Jesus has come down from Galilee. It is the, the festival of tabernacles, or as sometimes called, booths. It commemorates God's faithfulness during the Exodus and it looks forward to the coming Messiah. This is the last of the major feasts of the year. Coincidentally, it is October as it is for us now. The feast lasted eight days. The harvest was in and everybody was off. Okay, The people moved out of their homes and into booths. There are a million pilgrims in Jerusalem. Okay, And they are living in booths. Seventy bulls will be sacrificed during the week. The temple trumpets will be blown every day. And yes, Messiah has come to His own. We saw it in John 1, didn't we? Messiah has come to His own and His own did not receive Him. Jesus has come to Jerusalem. Jesus has come to His temple. Jesus has come for His ceremony and His people do not recognize Him. The religious leaders do not recognize God who is standing in front of them. They know the law. They know the ceremonies. They know the ritual. They can quote the Bible or the Old Testament Scriptures uh, for you verbatim. They know the religion, but they do not know God. And this is something I always challenge you with. I pray you're not simply a religious Christian. I pray you're not just a churchgoer. I pray you're in relationship with Jesus Christ. And I pray that He matters more to you than anything else in your life. Because if that's not true, you have not learned God correctly. You have not understood where your satisfaction rests. And Jesus is going to say it tonight, right? If you're thirsty, what? Come. You say, Jim, I'm dissatisfied with my life. I say drink. Drink from the One who made you. Drink from the One who made you for His purposes. Drink. We'll talk more about that as we make our way through the text. Verses 25 and 26. Some of the people were saying uh, of Jerusalem, uh, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom... Uh, the religious leaders are seeking to kill. And look, he's speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? I've often wondered about the presence of Jesus, what it was like to be in the God-man's presence. I've often wondered ab about this. I'm sure you have too. I, I imagine that he possessed a, uh, a compelling charisma. Um, I imagine that even in his most average human moments, there was something awesome about Him, particularly for those who had eyes to see and ears to hear. But the text says the religious leaders were saying nothing to Him. It makes me think of, you know what happened in John chapter 2, right? When Jesus cleansed the temple with a little whip. <laughs> and as one commentator said, He didn't need a whip. <laughs> These guys aren't saying anything. I think they know better than to say anything. Every time they speak to Him, He turns them upside down intellectually. They know better than to speak to Him. I think it's good that they're standing back and keeping their mouths closed. It's the safe thing to do. Verse 27 of John 7. However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. This is one reason the Jews missed Messiah. Why? They could memorize the Scripture, but they did not rightly divide it. They did not rightly divide it. They did not understand what God was saying. 
The popular belief of the day that was that Messiah would simply burst onto the scene suddenly and mysteriously, and nobody would know where he came from. It would just be this mysterious man who would appear. But they know where Jesus from is from. We, we talked about it a few weeks ago. They know his mom and dad. They know he's from Galilee. Well, they had not rightly divided the word. This, this Belief that He would appear suddenly, that Messiah would appear suddenly, comes from Malachi 3.1. It's a spectacular job of misinterpretation. It simply says the Lord will suddenly come to His temple. So how hard would it have been to get to the bottom of all this? You know, they've been saying all along, He can't be the Messiah, He's from Galilee. How hard would it have been to get to the bottom of it? What would it take? One question. They think he's from Galilee. <coughs> he grew up in Galilee. Where was he born? Bethlehem. He's in the lineage of David. They never bothered to investigate where he was actually born. I'm sure it's written in a book somewhere. In Bethlehem. They never bothered to investigate and how many people do you talk to in the world who won't take five minutes to investigate who Christ really is? And listen, if you know who He really is, you're one of the most important people in the world. And you need to be in the world telling people who He is. And yeah, there's going to be controversy. Of course there's going to be controversy. There's always been controversy. Don't expect to be a Christian and be in the world and be a disciple and be talking about Jesus and there not be controversy. Of course there's going to be controversy. But beloved, you're still on the planet that you might make Him known. Micah 5.2, most of you are familiar with. As for you, Bethlehem, from you one will go forth to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. All they had to do was ask one question. But here's the thing. They weren't really interested in the answer. They weren't really interested in the truth. It's like many people we speak to. They're not really interested, right? Not really. There are 10,000 excuses not to believe that Jesus is the Christ. There are 10,000 excuses in the world. Just pick one. Pick your lie. Right? It's what men do. It's what men do. These religious leaders did not want the truth. They were unwilling to come to Him. John 5.40 They were unwilling to do God's will. John 7.17 7, One question is all it would have taken. Verses 28-29 Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Now, most conservative theologians believe that Jesus is engaging in irony and sarcasm here because obviously they do not know where he's from. They think they know, but they do not know John 8, 19, Jesus will say, You neither know Me nor My Father. Now, these are the kinds of things that got Him crucified. What Jesus says to these men is utterly and totally offensive. Jesus was in the habit of offending the self-righteous. He still does today, amen? <laughs> you know, if you're hanging on to your self-righteousness, you think you're a good man before God, you don't really need a Savior, yeah, the words of Jesus will offend you all day long. You're never going to want to hear them. Jesus says here, you don't know Him. You don't know Him. Jesus is fond of saying these kinds of things. I heard John Piper say the other day that among modern liberals... John, the Gospel of John is the, one of the most hated books because Jesus is so in your face. He's just always in your face. And He's saying, if you don't know Me, you don't know God. If you don't love Me, you don't love God. If you don't come after Me, you're not coming after God. 
You're playing some kind of game with yourself. I didn't realize that that was true. Jesus says to these religious men through about the middle chapters of John, I'm just going to summarize for you. You do not honor God. You do not love God. You do not learn from God. You do not know God. You are of your father, the devil. Jesus will say to these religious men, you are of your father, the devil. (laughs) He's in their face, right? He's in their face. These false shepherds. And we're going to hear about what Jesus has to say about false shepherds over in John chapter 10. And listen, verse 30. Listen to this. They were seeking therefore to seize Him, and no man laid his hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. Now we talked a lot about this last week, so I won't belabor the point. But they can't get Jesus until Jesus allows it, right? According to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, Acts chapter 2. But there's a personal application here for us that I I hope that uh, you will... Yeah, own for yourself. We can be fearless. Why can we be fearless as Christians? Why can we, the same reason Jesus is fearless? They can't get you till the Father lets them get you. Jesus says the world will hate you. And naturally, that might cause fear to rise up within us, right? And of course, all you got to do is be in the public square and speak a few times. You'll find out. You'll find out what it's about. But they can't get you. Until it's your time. It's one of the things that it's one of the personal applications I take from this text. Matthew 10 29. What did Jesus say about the sparrow? Someone tell me. What's true about the sparrow? It does not fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. And how much more valuable are you than the sparrow? Right? We know what the psalmist says. Psalm 139.16 In your book, they were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was none of them. Jesus is fearless. They cannot seize Him. Nor in your boldness as a disciple will any harm come to you that God has not ordained for you. You say, well, Jim, Jesus got, cruci- uh, Jesus got crucified. It didn't look too good. Now, wait a minute. But it's the perfect will of God, right? <laughs> it's the perfect will of God. It was perfect. The 11th time they tried to get Him, He allowed Himself to be taken because He loved you, right? Because He's obeying the Father and He's loving you. He's saving you. And sometimes when, you know, we just sang the song. When God doesn't move the mountain, do you trust Him? (laughs) Do you still trust Him or not? Or is your faith about that big? Do you trust Him? Listen, beloved, we can be fearless. We can take our cue from Jesus Christ. Verse 31 32. But many of the multitude believed. And they were saying, when the Christ shall come, He will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will He? The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering uh, these things about Him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize Him. So, many believed because of the signs. Verse 32, but the religious leaders heard about this, and they sent guards to go and arrest Jesus. I'm in verse 33. Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews therefore said to one another, What does this man mean or intend that we cannot follow him? We cannot go where he's going. What does this statement mean? These guys are clueless, right? What is Jesus talking about? Well, at least one of the things I, I believe Jesus is saying here is that God is patient and long-suffering. Praise the Lord. Amen. I had 28 years of wanton rebellion against God. Arrogant indifference. And He was patient with me. And He saved me. Praise God, He is long-suffering. 
for in a little while longer, I will no longer be with you and you will not be able to come where I am. God says this in several different ways in the Word. You guys know. My, God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Genesis 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Isaiah 55. Call upon the Lord while He is near. Isaiah 55. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Hebrews 3. We've been saying a lot. I'm going to keep saying it. I love it. I'll say it till I die. It'll be in the last sermon I preach, God willing. God says, here I am, right? Isaiah chapter 65, why then will you die? I think part of what Jesus is saying here, it's a call, it's always a call to repentance. It's always a call to come, right? Here I am, God says, why then will you die? We talked about it last week. If a man lands in hell, it's because he was unwilling to come. You know, unbelievers get all juiced up about hell. They just think, that how could that be right? How could eternal conscious punishment be right? How could the Bible actually be saying that? How could the Lord Jesus actually talk like this? Well, it's what men have chosen. Jesus is saying, lest you repent, believe, and come to Me, you will never be able to come where I am. There's not ten ways to God. There's not five ways to God. There's not two ways to God. I know that the multicultural world tells you otherwise, but my, my question always is, who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to listen to? Are you, going to be, are you listening to the father of lies or are you ear deep in this? And you cannot be deceived. Because you know the Word. And the Word is your defense. And the Word is your power. The Word is your hope. The Word is your encouragement. The Word builds your faith. Every day you're in it, your faith is built up in the Word. This is your sword. Amen? Some of you need to unsheathe it and use it. You've only got a few moments left on the planet. So today is the day of grace. It's lasted 2,000 years. We don't know how much longer it will last. And you know, men are either willing to come or they're not willing to come. I would simply say to you that God says you decide. And God is saying that to some of you right now. You decide. Am I going to continue to just play church or am I going to be, I'm going, or am I going to be all in with God? Am I going to be all in with Christ? Verses 37 and 38. The last day of the feast, Jesus stood. He cried out saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Let me set the stage for you. It's the last day of the feast. It's a big deal. All the people have a branch. It's either from a willow tree or a palm tree. And they line up from the pool of Bethesda um, to the temple, and everybody's holding their branches, and it's like it's like a roof. They're making a roof, and the and the and the high priest will carry a golden pitcher of water from the pool. I'm sorry, the pool of Siloam, from the pool, right? And he will bring it to the to the temple, and he will pour it on the altar. It's commemorating the water from the rock in the Exodus. And it's a foreshadowing of the waters of salvation from Messiah. Do you get the picture? The people are chanting. The Levites are singing. Actually, it's said in history that some of the rabbis are known to, uh, are recorded as saying, if you have never experienced this ceremony, you have never experienced human joy. So this is a big deal. It's, it's, it's big, right? Everybody's there. Everybody's jazzed. It's one of the most beautiful ceremonies in Judaism. And then Jesus stands up. 
When the water is poured out on the altar, Jesus stands up and says, If any man is thirsty, come to me and drink. Can you sense the power of this? Can you sense the... Messiah has come! No more foreshadowing, no more pictures. He's here! And He's offering Himself. If you're thirsty, if you're a thirsty man or woman, come and drink! I'll satisfy your soul. All that symbolism pointed at Him and there He is. Can you imagine? the? I think you could have heard a pin drop. Right? When He stood up and thundered forth His invitation to all who are thirsty. The ceremony is about God the Savior. He saved the, the, the Exodus Jews in the wilderness by giving them water out of a rock. And He spiritually saves all who would come to Him. He is a Savior. He's Christ the Savior. And then He says, come. Come. Come to Me and drink. So there's this self-evident truth about mankind that we talk about quite often. You are thirsty. God made you thirsty. God made you thirsty. Your soul is thirsty. Just like your soul, just like your body is thirsty, your body has to have water. Your soul must have God. Now, you can try a lot of substitutes. There are a lot of things in the world you can substitute for God. When I was talking to someone earlier, um, they won't satisfy. Some of you are young, and some of you are like me. You're young and stupid. I was young and stupid. Okay? No offense. I'm telling you a personal story. I thought the world was more fun than God. Even though my parents raised me in the church when I was baptized when I was eight. It didn't mean anything to me. I was stupid. I thought I knew better. Well, my career is going to satisfy me. Money's going to make me happy. A wife and family and a new house and a sporty car. It's going to make it happen for me, man. I'm telling you as an old man, I told you last week, nothing's more fun in this world than Jesus Christ. Nothing will satisfy you like He will. He says, come on! You want, you want your thirst to be quenched? Come on, here I am! Why then should you die of soul thirst? Come! Come and drink. Come and drink. I heard Piper say it. John Piper, famous preacher in the States. I thought it was powerful. He said, this is the most important thing you can know about yourself. You must have God to be satisfied. Some of you don't know that yet. Some of you aren't convinced yet. It's the most important thing you need to know about yourself. Your soul is thirsty and you must have God. You must have God. You guys remember Jeremiah 2.12. God says, Let the heavens be appalled. Let them shudder. My people have left me for broken cisterns that can hold no water. You can't help but you know, be stunned at the drama in this, these few verses. Let the heavens shudder that man has turned their back on God. And they're drinking from the world. And the world can't satisfy them ever. And God says, here I am. <laughs> here I am. Come. Come and drink. So, one thing we're talking about here, obviously, is, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is not just a, a little quenching. This is like God-sized, eternal, and infinite quenching. It's the, member, it's the third member of the Trinity taking up rev, uh, residence in our souls. It's not just a river. It's plural. It's rivers of water. It's not just water. It's living water. This is life. You know, Christianity is unlike any other so-called religion. Christianity, Christianity actually delivers life. Eternal life. And God is our reward. <laughs> He's our reward, man. You know, you know who's going to play around with 
Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Scientology. I mean, what's the payoff? You know? God is our reward. God will satisfy our soul forever. It's the promise He makes. In Scripture, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And you guys know that great picture of Revelation 22.1. This river of life that flows out from the throne of God and the Lamb clears crystal. This fountain, God is a fountain and He will be a fountain for a billion eternities and you can drink forever. Another thing that, that, that I was thinking about with respect to these rivers of water flowing out, and I think Peter's a good example. I'm just going to ask you, is, are the rivers, are they flowing? What, what did Jesus say? They'll be flowing what? Out of your innermost being? Are they flowing? Let me ask you, are they flowing? And I thought about Peter, right? You remember the night Jesus was arrested, he was afraid of a little girl at the fire. And he denied Jesus three times. What happened to Peter after he received the Holy Spirit? What did he do? He preached fearlessly in Jerusalem. Many believed. And the Pharisees, they, they arrested him and they said, you got to stop talking about this Jesus. He said, no way. I mean, the guy's transformed, right? He's not afraid of the little girl at the fire anymore. He's not afraid of the religious leaders anymore. He's not afraid of anything anymore. These are the this is the living water flowing out. This is what happens. Okay? This is what happens. The rivers of living water welling up in us. It is life. And it enables us to be used of God in the world. To make much of Jesus so are you allowing the Holy Spirit to flow through you? Beloved, I just ask you tonight. Are you using your Holy Spirit gifts in the church and in the world to quench the thirst of others? Real born-again Christianity is always Ephesians 2. God says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked and lived in the lust of your flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. By nature, you were children of wrath. But I made you alive, is what he says. I did it. I made you alive. And the third member of the Trinity indwells you. I have to ask you, I hear Karen use this all the time, she asks this question all the time. How can God take up residence in you and your life not radically change? How could that be possible at all? It is not possible. Your life will change. You will be a conduit of living water. You will be. I'm not saying we don't have hard times and dry times and difficult times, but you will be. A vessel of living water as God uses you to bring people to Himself. God has made us alive. God means for you to be a conduit of His truth by the power of His Spirit, which always leads to conversions. Look at verse 40 and 41. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, Certainly, He is the prophet, meaning Messiah. He's the one. Now, I want to take you back again. How did they come to believe? How did they come to believe? I always drive you to this point. How did they come to believe? What does the verse say? What did they say? What does it say? When they what? Heard what? These words. Not when they saw this miracle. Miracles do not bring saving faith. What brings saving faith? The Word of God brings saving faith. We see it over and over and over in the Scriptures. It just keeps happening. So they heard the Word. And you guys know, I remind you all the time, you can't leave ICM and not know this, and I know Elijah knows it. Some of you, you'll be leaving soon. Don't you ever forget how faith comes. It's Romans 10.11. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. This is how faith comes. This is not only how born-again faith begins, this is how born-again faith lives. You say, Jim, there's not a lot of power in my life. I say, that's on you. If you call yourself a Christian, that's on you. 
there will be power in your life. If you're in His Word. You got, man, you know, you, you just, you have an emaciated soul if you're not eating the Word, if you're not eating the bread, eating the meat, drinking uh, the wine of the Word. You're emaciated. You're like an Olympic athlete trying to compete who hasn't eaten in 30 days. You can't compete. You don't have anything to give. You're emaciated. It's part of, I think, what the Lord Jesus is saying to us. Look at 41b here. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is He? It's still the Galilee thing. Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of Christ. The division always comes. It always comes. I hope that most of you already know this, that you will lose friends, you will lose family members, you will lose neighbors and colleagues because you stand up and you lovingly speak the words of Jesus. People will cut you out of their life. It's just going to happen. It's always happened. It always will happen until He comes back. Are you willing to love them enough and are you willing to love God enough to obey God and sow the good seed and let the, let the chips fall? Whatever happens, happens. Hey, listen, this, this is very personal to me. I have people close to me. It's over. It was just over. It will happen. Division always comes. With the biblical Jesus. Now the cartoon Jesus, everybody loves Him. I'm talking to you about the biblical Jesus. And these guys are still talking about Galilee. This is a phony issue. Ask Him one question. Where were you born? They're not willing to do it. They're not interested in the truth. Here's what we've been talking about for the last three weeks. If a man doesn't want to know the truth, he will not know it. If a man wants to know the truth, he will. This is what we've been really learning the last three or four weeks. God promises in His Word, genuine seekers will find, they will always find. If a man doesn't find, if a man doesn't come, and if a man doesn't drink, we already know what we've, we've learned in uh, John 5 and John 6 and John 7, he is unwilling to come. You cannot push a rope, Right? You can't push a rope. But Jesus says division will always come. You know the text. I'm going to read it to you. Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53. Jesus said, these are His words, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You know what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 and 15. What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Satan? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? The division will always come. It will always come. Jesus is warning his followers, the division will come. The controversy will come. If you come with me, the world will hate you. Let's finish up. Verses 44 to 49. Let me just summarize. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. And the officers therefore came to the chief priests and says, uh, they said, why didn't you bring him? We sent you to arrest him. We talked about that last week. And what does the officer say? Nobody has ever spoken like this man. Nobody speaks like this man. Nobody talks like this man. Yeah, nobody talks like Jesus. He claims to be God. <laughs> yeah, I know there's some lunatics in the world that claim to be God. And here's the deal. We talked about this many, many times. He either is a lunatic or he's God. He can't simply be a good man. He can't simply be a good prophet, as Islam says. Islam's lying to you. He can't simply be a prophet. He can't be a prophet. He claimed to be God. So, 
receive Him as God or reject Him as a lunatic. Really, these are your choices. These are your choices. So, nobody spoke like this. Verse 47, the Pharisees said, Have you been led astray? Verse 48, No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in Him, have they? But this multitude which does not know the law is accursed. So we touched on this last week. They could not arrest Him. It wasn't His time. And the Pharisees berate the, the uh, temple guards for being, and, and, the, and the crowd for being uneducated, unsophisticated, weak, and simple-minded. And they posed the question, none of the Pharisees have believed, have they? Well, maybe one is starting to believe, right? What happens next? Verse 50, Nicodemus said to them, who had come to Jesus before, being one of the Pharisees, verse 51, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said to him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So I don't think Nicodemus is there yet. He just makes a simple argument that would be generally applied to all men, not simply to Jesus, right? Shouldn't we hear Him first before we condemn Him? I don't think He's there, but He's working on it. It's what I challenge you guys to do all the time in young adult Bible study, right? Work on it. Pray about it. Study. Think deeply about what God is saying to you. Humbly receive it, even if you don't fully grasp it or understand it. Humbly receive it. Drink. You say, Jim, I'm struggling with this issue, this issue or that issue. Give it to God. See what God has to say about it. Drink. Drink. So there's always been controversy with Jesus. There always has been and there always will be until He returns. It's been my experience that this controversy scares most people. First of all, they are leery or distrustful of His words to begin with. And secondly, when the heat comes, when the persecution comes, when the affliction comes, they don't believe it at all. So, they are out of there. Let me just close. I shared this with the young adults last week. And as I thought about the last four or five sermons through, you know, John 6, John 7, this seemed to be a pretty good summary of what we're watching. I'm just going to read to you from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 30, and then I'll be done. Just listen, please. Paul, writing the Word of God through the power of the Spirit, says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. God says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. 
but by His doing, you are in Christ. Amen and amen. I simply close by asking you a very simple question that only you can answer. Are you thirsty? Where are you drinking? And the awesome Creator God of the cosmos says, Here I am. Come. Come and drink. This is the invitation of God. This is the invitation of your Creator. So I invite you, if you don't know Christ, let's meet. Let's talk. Let's get together. If you have questions, let's meet. Let's talk. Let's get together. Okay? Because I know you know what John Piper said is true. I know you know you must have God. You must have God. And He will satisfy your soul forever and ever and ever and ever. Let's pray together. Lord, we always, as always, we thank You for the text. This text that You used Your disciple to record. The text You've preserved down through the ages. The text that You've delivered into our hands that we may know the truth. Lord, forgive us for I'm sure there's more than one of us in here that has taken much of this for granted. That I actually have a Bible translated reliably into a language I understand. That I, I can immerse myself in the Word of God. That I, can, that I can see the beauty and the power of Jesus coming off the page. That I can feel the water stirring in my soul. That I can feel His power and His courage and His boldness to speak in the world, to be His man, to be His woman. Lord God, forgive us if we take these things for granted. May we become good stewards of Your Word. And the way we become good stewards is to know it and to share it. Help us, Father. Help us to be Your disciples in the world. Thank You for this text. Thank You for the satisfaction that You offer in Jesus. We pray all this in His beautiful name. Amen. I think I may have preached a few minutes long. Let's stand and I will close with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Go in peace. Go in peace. God bless. Amen. <laughs>